Welcome to the Faculty New Books podcast, covering the latest authors and publications from across the subject spectrum. Almost everything that everybody thinks they know about him is false. So he wasn't a circumnavigator of the world. In fact, there's no evidence that he ever envisaged, even imagined, a circumnavigation of the world. He didn't discover a new route to the Spice Islands. Uh, He didn't make a profit on his great voyage. He didn't contribute anything, as far as I can see, to scientific or geographical knowledge. So that's who he wasn't. Who he was, I think the easiest way to get into understanding the personality of Magellan is to to realise that he's a guy with a huge chip on his shoulder. He's an orphan. His family are minor nobility from the edges of the Portuguese kingdom. So he grows up as an outsider of the court of the king of Portugal, where the only education he gets is in warfare. You could get lessons in Latin and Greek even at the court of the king of Portugal in those days if you were clever enough, but Magellan wasn't in that league. So he's trained really to be a squire fighting for the king. And his great hope, his great ambition is to retrieve the birthright that he feels he's lost. He's full of resentment and he just wants to recover what he thinks are his rights. He wants to be knighted, possibly you know, get a, 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 a superior title of nobility, to rise in the king's service and he models his life on the reading that he does in his youth which is chivalric romance this is the the station bookstore or airport bookstore pulp fiction of his day and like so many of us you know he models himself on the heroes of the stories that he 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 reads and the typical these typical stories are of people down on their luck like him outsiders like him, who recover greatness by going on great voyages and discovering lands and maybe you know, marrying princesses, that's the usual fader. So that's what he seeks to do. But when he leaves, the, when he graduates from the court school, everything goes wrong for him. Uh, he, he fights in the king's wars, but without really achieving any promotion. He has various money-making schemes. They all fail. And eventually, he despairs of getting any advancement in his native country. And he, he shakes the dust off his feet, and he seeks his fortune in the neighboring kingdom of Spain. And that's where he gets the commission to go on a great voyage of of exploration. And that's where the story of his transformation into a sort of hero, although, in my opinion, not a very convincing one. That's when his transformation to sort of myth begins. Well, almost everything went wrong for him in life, really, from his orphanhood when his parents die when he's, he's young. And, you know, it's not a great life being a a sort of poor um, member of a a court school where almost everybody is, you know, richer than you are and from more famous families than than yours. So he's an an outsider and he takes refuge in these fantasies about becoming a sort of chivalric 
hero. And I, I guess that the reason why he's, he, he's, his resentment mounts to the point where he leaves the king's service and, and goes off and really, in an act of, was really treason, goes off and seeks employment with the rival king of Spain. I think the reason his resentment reaches that point is that he fights for the king in, in the Indian Ocean and in wars in Morocco, but he never gets anywhere. He never gets promotion, he never gets the rewards he wants, and he goes back to court and he asks the king to increase his stipend, his pension that he gets from the, the crown. The king refuses. And that's the moment where Magellan uh, decides that he's just not going to put up with this any longer and he's going to seek his fortune elsewhere. The reason why he can do that is partly because, you know, it's a very permeable frontier and people are always moving between Spain and Portugal anyway in those days. And his commanding officer during his fighting in Morocco had been the Duke of Braganza, the head of one of the rival dynasties for the throne of Portugal. And in a previous bust-up with the King of Portugal, many of the members of the Braganza family had been exiled to Spain. And so Magellan goes and he joins them. He goes to Seville, where these Portuguese exiles are based. And it's there that the, 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 the program or project for a, a voyage of exploration takes place. Why do they choose Magellan for it? He's got no experience. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's got no training of any real importance or merit in navigation as far as we know. Indeed, he doesn't show any talent for navigation. But I think in Spain, they're kind of on the lookout for a stooge. They want someone to try and find the route that had eluded Columbus, the western route to Asia, and above all to the Spice Islands, the Moluccas, the islands which produce cloves and nutmeg and mace, which because of demand in China are the most valuable products per unit of weight in the world. But every expedition the Spaniards had sent to try and, and, and find this, it all ended in disaster, you know, it all come to grief. And really, I think it's fair to say that you know, most people really didn't want to take part in another attempt. So they're on the lookout for someone who's willing to do it, and that someone is Magellan. He already comes to court with a, the idea half-formed in his, his mind. And he's got a sort of scientific consultant who's, who's helped him work out the, the details of the, the scheme. Rather ironically, that scientific consultant, Rui Faleiro, uh, was, I mean, he was crazy. He was literally certifiably insane by the standards of the time, and he ends up in a, in a mental asylum. So put this all together, you know, you've got an unqualified guy engaging in an expedition, all previous attempts at which have shown that it's bound for disaster. He's got a sidekick and supposed expert who's literally insane. It's not surprising in retrospect that when this voyage finally sets out very badly organized, very badly financed, and very badly equipped, it's almost certain to end in catastrophe. And indeed it does. So most of these expeditions come to grief, but Magellan's done so in a really spectacular way. 90% 
of his men, including he, of course, die in this voyage. That's a very elevated death rate. And he loses every ship except, um, except one. And, and as I say, although there's a sort of myth that eventually the voyage made a profit, it didn't even make a profit. So it was a, a failure by every imaginable criterion. It seems strange that, that a guy who was a total failure um, should be celebrated as a hero in the literature. And nowadays, you know, he, he's got a bunch of stuff named after him, not just, you know, not just the Strait of Magellan, but, you know, sort of whole areas of the New Hemisphere, species, uh, university prizes, scientific awards, expeditions. I mean, you know, the, the NASA space probe that was named after him. There's a whole galaxy out there named after um, Magellan. And so it's very odd, you know, well, how, what is it that, that accounts for this reputation? Well, quite honestly, I don't really have an answer to that. But I mean, one um, part of the answer is that, well, he followed, I guess, what you might call Winston Churchill's prescription. You remember, Winston Churchill said he wasn't afraid of the judgments of history because he was going to write it. Well, Magellan wasn't up to writing it for himself, but he had someone do it for him. He had a very talented writer, Antonio Pigafetta, who was under his smell. He was kind of one of the many victims of Magellan's very considerable personal charisma. And after the, the voyage of which he was one of the very few survivors, Pigafetta writes it up in a way which lionizes Magellan and kind of elevates him to this kind of great heroic status. And I guess to some extent, Magellan contributed to his own apotheosis. By the way, he died. You know, his death was a great career move, like Elvis Presley's. Um, indeed, I think that he deliberately contrived his own death in order to make himself into a, a hero, because by that stage, he's on the Philippine islands. All his ambitions have collapsed. He's come to grief in every respect. And really, he's got no way out. If he goes back to Spain, he's going to have his head chopped off because he's committed treason, not only against the king of Portugal, but also against the king of Spain by disobeying orders, by garroting and stabbing and, and, and marooning um, rival captains in the course of his his voyage. So you know, he, he's, he's really got no way out except to die heroically. And he, he goes into to battle like one of those knights of old whom he so admired and on whose trajectories he based his own life. And he goes into battle refusing help, really knowing that he's bound to be defeated, and he finally sort of dies on a Filipino beach and is surrounded by the handful of supporters who are, who are still, you know, clinging to him uh, and, and seeing him out to the very end. So that also, that death helps to make him um, a hero. And I suppose the final thing is that you know, many of us love failure. <laughs> the nobility of failure is exalted in Japanese literature. The British and the Spanish are both, my own peoples to whom I belong by birth, they both, you know, love failures. The British love the Dunkirk spirit, as they call it. Spaniards, you know, as Spanish saying is, 
Honour without ships is better than ships without honour. So the nobility of failure also helps to elevate Magellan into the status of a hero. He wasn't, I mean, one of the other myths about him is, you know, the myth that he was a sort of, he was motivated by religion. He absolutely wasn't. I mean, for, for most of his life, he was no more than conventionally pious by the standards of his time. But towards the end of his life, he becomes kind of, well, I mean, you know, dare I say, a religious nutcase. Because obviously these voyages, imagine what it's like being on a long voyage like that of Magellan. It's bound to change your character. You're stuck in you know, a stinking ship with a bunch of you know, rats and desperados and enemies and people are trying to kill you and you're in these terrible conflicts. And the, the voyages last for such a long time. I mean, on the, in the Pacific, Magellan spends 97 days on the open sea. And by the end of that, the crew are starving. They're literally you know, ripping the leather linings from the moss in order to have something to chew on with guns that are swollen by scurvy. So, you know, it's a really horrible experience. And I think to survive it is, you know, quite understandable it turns you into a religious nutcase. If you survive that, you really think that God has got something special in mind for you. So, towards the end of his life, McGowan does turn religious. Like so many of us, he turns to God, you know, in disaster. Uh, and he even sets out, you know, sort of try and convert the Philippines to Christianity um, single-handedly, uh, a project which, like everything else he attempted, it also ends in failure, of course. Well, I don't want to flatter myself, but I mean, I think I have busted, you know, all these, these myths, and I think I have also exposed what McGowan was really like, and also shown how his character changed. It's one of my quarrels with previous biographers of Magellan. They always present this rather sort of static figure, but of course, you know, nobody is static. We all change in the course of our lives, and Magellan more than most, because he's had these searing experiences. You could, you know, summarize it by saying that the Atlantic made him more ruthless and reckless, and that's why he commits all his sort of murders and, and, and judicial murders of mutineers. Uh, and the Pacific makes him more religious. But my, my work is also exposed, as well as you know, exposing all these truths, it's also, I think, exposed a big problem, which is you know, nowadays, a dead white male explorer, it's almost the worst thing you can be, you know, because people hate you, they traduce your reputation, they pull down your statues, they besmirch your your. Uh, renowned, even if you're a relatively good guy like Columbus. And Magellan, as well as being a total failure, really isn't a very nice man. <laughs> His crimes include murder and arson and, and, and massacre and treason, uh, of course. And yet, you know, in spite of all that, he's escaped the obloquy that clings to most other dead white male explorers of this period. His statues are still in place, all these prizes and galaxies and species and lands and places and businesses are still named after him. And so that's the kind of paradox, I guess, with which I'm, I'm left and for which, as I admit, I, I don't really have a, a great solution, thank God, because if I could solve this problem, it would cease to be interesting. But I think it is interesting, the problem, the capriciousness of reputation. Why do some guys 
get the brickbats and others escape. <laughs>